LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Bernie Taylor, who joins me to ask, are we alone in the cosmos? Human self-awareness and contemplation of past, present, and future appear to make us unique among life on Earth and within its solar system. But are we unique within the wider galaxy, or even the entire universe? The Drake equation suggests that the cosmos should be teeming with intelligent life. So why have we yet to make contact? While there are plenty of anecdotal accounts of alien encounters, no concrete evidence truly open to public scrutiny has yet emerged. The Fermi paradox cites many possible reasons why we have yet to discover extraterrestrial life. Perhaps, like us, intelligent alien species lack the capacity for interstellar travel. Maybe ET has avoided contact so that we evolve without outside interference. It could even be that humans are regarded as pathologically destructive and that contact with Earth could endanger life elsewhere. Perhaps it's in the nature of intelligent life to destroy itself before it can expand to other worlds. This grim scenario sounds a lot like where humanity finds itself in the early 21st century. However, if no intelligent life exists or has ever existed anywhere else in the universe, it is imperative that we halt our apparent death drive and find a way to live in balance with what will almost certainly be the only planet we ever inhabit. Hello and welcome, Bernie, and thank you for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg, for having me on the show. Today we're going to ask the big question, or perhaps two big questions. Are we alone in the cosmos? And from the astrophysics standpoint, why the big silence? Exactly, exactly. And the questions don't really come much bigger than that. Now, this today, Bernie, our chat is based around a presentation that you did recently. That was entitled, Are We Alone in the Cosmos? Biological Time and the Drake, Inqu- Drake Equation. You gave that at the University of Hawaii. Uh, before we jump into our discussion, for people who don't know, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Absolutely. So my work going back for about 20 years is about the biological clocks and rhythms of animals. So why or how do the salmon know when to migrate in synchrony? How do the birds know when to drop their eggs? Do they all smart, s- follow one smart salmon or one smart bird? I don't think so. Um, and I wrote a book, Biological Time, about this, and I gave presentations to scientific groups, tribes, um, very important, and government agencies. And I uh, wrote a book, Biological Time, wrote many papers and did the conferences, all that sort of stuff. And then later on, I went back to that work, which is about five years ago, and I looked at the Paleolithic Caves of Europe more deeply, and the mythology jumped out. So I took a different direction. So now we're going to step back to the on the program to go to where I was about 15 years ago. And what we're going to tie it in the biological 
clockwork and the rhythms in nature, but we're going to tie it into the cosmological questions, the big stuff. And by the way, I wrote a paper about this for the Griffith Observatory some years back, Griffith Observatory, which is the observatory outside of Los Angeles. And uh, so this was published in the so-called peer-reviewed um, literature, this concept. But today we're going to bring it from that, you know, these obscure journals onto the international podcast waves. Okay, well, as you say, you're, um, are we alone, this big question? And in fact, it's a great fit for what I'm doing in general, because at the start of the show, if anybody's been listening right from the beginning, that I've heard sound stitched together at the start, and uh, the speaker asks the questions, why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And the supplemental to that on my the text on my website is that these are questions which it appears we've compelled to ask, even though we may never answer them. We seem driven to ask these questions, to seek answers, you know, and we seem to be unique in that respect, certainly in life on this planet. Now, you have said, you have stated uh, that this question, are we alone, is, quote, perhaps the most important matter facing humanity. We'll touch on that right the way through, but briefly, why do you think that's the case? We seem to be looking outside for answers. We look to the gods. We look to, you know, the, what ancient aliens allegedly gave us thousands of years ago. Um, we're now looking at, we look into space um, through the SETI Institute project and others looking for ET on a so-called scientific level. This is the big question. Um, are we so unique in the cosmos that as intelligent, time keep, conscious timekeeping beings that can communicate across the, 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 the solar system and into the galaxy, is there something so unique about us? And if there is so un- something so unique about us, is it because a god gave us gave us this um, position in the in the cosmos, or is it some quirk of biology and nature that brought us to this position? And Joseph, um, the biblical uh, prophet Abraham, and not a religious person, but it was he. It was written in Josephus that Abraham said that the sun, moon, and the stars appear to to synchronize the animals for the benefit of us, but they appear, they appear to have no benefit for themselves. Therefore, there was a one God who made the, as, as of all the plants, the moon and the stars that made those for us. So this is a concept that goes deep into antiquity that people have asked. And if you, if we are alone in the cosmos, why is that so? Is it because of a divine being or a quirk of biology and nature? From the title of your talk, you mentioned both biological time and the Drake equation. As we're, well, we'll get to the Drake equation in due course, but as we're moving somewhat back in time in terms of your research or picking up some themes that, you know, you had uh, explored previously, perhaps you should just say a word about biological time, you know, the title of your first book. Absolutely. What the concept is, but just before we move on. Absolutely. I'll give you a few examples. And we're going to go, I'm in Oregon, um, on the west coast of the United States. So we're going to travel across the Pacific Ocean to the island of Taiwan. And there's indigenous people there who have been there before the Chinese came after the revolution. And these indigenous people call the Yami. And every spring, the, the Yami go out to look for the flying fish. And the, they count when to look for the flying fish 13 new moons from the last time the flying fish appeared. Okay, so it's like almost like once one year, but a year based on the moons. And they go out during the new moons because the, they, they raise their torch lights, and in the darkness with the lights, the flying fish will jump up and they catch them. 
And if they don't find the flying fish during that new moon, they go out one lunation later, and they're always there by that time. The Yami then take the flying fish back to their their beach um, encampments, and they have a ceremony. And that ceremony sets off the biological clocks for all the marine animals that they will harvest for the next year. So they believe if the flying fish is earlier or later based on their on this lunar, the solar lunar calendar, then everything else will be earlier or later. It's a phenomenal concept. Um, and in, in the United States, in North America, uh, actually let's say the Pacific part of North America, we have Native Americans who in their traditions had the same concept, concept for harvesting salmon. It was entirely lunar and from the migrations or the catching of the salmon outside of the, into the, out of the bays, into the lower rivers, up into the rivers, deep, deep into the, into, um, the interior. And those same, those same calendars also timed, um, large undulates such as the deer. The Thompson Indians who are in, let's say, the, the western part of Canada, they reset their calendar based on the black-tailed deer. And actually, the, it was the, it was the, um, the rutting of the black-tailed deer. And then, of course, the black-tailed deer have a gestation rate, um, period, and you could then time when the young would drop. Well, their, so their entire calendar, which everything set forth, all the plants and animals that they would um, harvest um, and hunt, would be reset from that black-tailed deer. The Chukchi people, who are indigenous to Siberia, their entire calendar is about the reindeer, or we would say caribou in the United States. So they live their lives in, among the reindeer in a lunar fashion. And what I did in bi biological time some years ago is I went back and looked at the caves of, of France 17,000 to 17, years ago to see if there's any of the nomenclature in the caves synchron or, and the images synchronized this biological clock behavior. And, if, and it did. It was because the biological timing of these animals is the same it is today. And as you could go, if you want to take a... Um, a tour of South Africa, Southern Africa region, in um, Tanzania to see the, the Serengeti wildebeest um, migration. And you call up and you say, well, I want to go June 1st. Well, they're going to say, well, we got to look at the lunar calendar because the migration of the wildebeest, just like these other these large other animals such as the, the reindeer in Siberia and the black-tailed deer in Canada, is timed to the moon. There was work done by the um, British Columbian um, biologist Anthony Sinclair, and he actually looked at the the dropping of the wildebeest juveniles and back calculated the gestation period and found that in fact they actually start on the the rut. The rut is at the full moon every year, and so this was published in Nature some years back. In Oregon, where I am, um, Norm Anderson at Oregon State University, where my daughter is going to go to school this fall in biology. Is Norm was an aquatic entomologist, or is an aquatic entomologist, but now retired. He showed that year after year, the migration of invertebrates, the insects and rivers, were dramatic, dramatic during the dark of the moon, but but insignificant during the full of the moon. And so, so it's not just the large undulates, it's not just the salmon, it's not just the um, the the flying fish. It all starts at the invertebrate level that they're responding to these dark. Like dark rhythms. Now, this is where Bernie came in. Is that the moon is 29 and a half days, and if you divide 365 by 29 and a half days, you're 11 days short. So, hypothetically, if the the salmon migrated during the dark of the moon on January 12th in year one, it would be January 1st, year two. 
So the reason that the migrations of these animals are from one year to the next is because they're both solar and lunar timed. Now, that's what's in the indigenous calendars from around the world. The, the scientific literature had, was loaded with lunar events, but no one had ever asked that question or put together, that's what makes them earlier or later. They would just have, you know, year after year lunar events. And so, and then what I said, well, if, if it is that way, you have these earlier, later lunar, it makes it earlier, later based on our clock, our solar clock, but also it'll set into the motion other biological events in the life history of the salmon. So the salmon will migrate, they'll drop their egg, they'll spawn, drop their eggs, um, there'll be a gestation period, the juveniles get going. So everything in their life cycle will be entrained to these light, um, these solar lunar rhythms. And it's a, it's a fundamental part of the biology of animals around the world. Um, and I also believe that it's key to the existence of mankind. I think, I think, I think it's bigger than fire. Let's put it that way. I think it's, it's 10 times bigger than fire. I think it is the pivotal moment. There's a pivotal moment in our deep history when we found, when we recognize this. And what probably happened is we probably, we were living on the beaches. So the distant ancestor of us, the chimpanzee, probably lived on the beach. And the, the, among Homo sapiens, the, the menstrual cycle is 28 days, days on average, which is roughly in time with that of the tides. And so the, and among females, they, if they live in close quarters, they'll synchronize their menstrual cycles. And women who have lived in dorms or nuns and that sort of stuff, they, they have this experience. And so what probably happened is they, they were, the, the females in the group synchronized the menstrual cycle. They recognized that the tides were the same as their own biological rhythms. They, they recognized that the tides were tied to the moon and that they learned they could actually walk off the beach and they could actually, they could mentally understand where they were in time and space. And they learned that they could, by being in sync, being in sync with the tides and understanding what tides would happen, they would more uh, prolifically harvest shellfish and maybe fish from the from the surf. And if a, if a, ch- a chimpanzee-like animal is hanging around the surf for a long time, they're probably going to it's probably going to lose its hair because it's a no advantage in the surf. It'll probably start to walk upright because the the chimpanzees the, the body structure is not designed to carry itself upright. However, chimpanzees, when they walk through the water, they do so upright. So if you put the, this biological clock behavior, you tie it to the um, the surf or the, the, marine, the marine environment, and with the moon, it all forms this picture of how we could have split from the common ancestor with the chimpanzee, um, so why we're not chimpanzees or like chimpanzees, how we learn ter- turn to tell time, and by being able to tell time, we could plan for the future, and that's the big deal. As far as we know, there are no other animals on this planet that can plan for the future. Squirrels in the fall, when lots of nuts fall, they put the, they, they store those nuts away. Squirrels will actually forget where they store their nuts. They're hoarding the nuts. They're not planning for the future. That's the difference. Whereas we will plan for the future that we'll say six months ahead, we need, for the next six months, we need to have food and we're going to stash that in some sort of cold storage. Okay. Um, and we have the ability to do that. We've had the ability to do that for, I'd say, millions of years. Whereas the chimpanzee, the elephant, the dolphin, the whale, highly intelligent animals never learn to do that. 
and it's a function of the female menstrual cycle timing among homo sapiens being in sync with the moon and with the other and the ability to be able to time other biological life so that's in a nutshell of the concept yeah well these rhythms of the earth symbiotic dance kind of of these patterns and you know, animal behavior has always synchronized with that to some degree or there's been alignments or some kind of correspondence and as you say it was a key part of human evolution that we noticed this and then moved beyond that and began to use it purely in the first case i would say for practical purposes as you say you know a better harvest a better catch whatever it happens to be but then you can start to get smarter with it and do more and this is i suppose this ties in with the development of civilization as you move beyond pure survival and the question is then begged over a longer period of time going into the past even for the longest time we can talk about say you know with hominids being on the earth the positions of sun moon the earth and the stars haven't changed a great deal relative to each other but in the distant past things were a little for example the moon was much closer to the earth in the distant past and it's very very slowly moving away now so the question is in terms of the synchronicities and alignments that i mentioned never minding human development and becoming unique in some way um, amongst other life forms in this earth but how much of the of life on earth full stop owes itself to any of these happy coincidences as it were uh, and then this has relevance to a, a larger question that we're asking about the existence of life elsewhere, because the existence or, or non-existence of life elsewhere in the galaxy, or indeed the wider universe, may be impacted by these the sort of um, synchronicities and alignments that we're talking about. Absolutely. All the animals that I previously mentioned, their timing of reproduction, so that they synchronize their reproduction, um, is to the moon. So they, if they didn't have that lunar synchronization, they would be kind of, you know, over weeks or months at a time, their actual, um, their breeding and their migrations and so on. And so some would be too early, some would be too late, and they would have, they might not be what they are today. Now, what's, I had mentioned earlier that the, the, the human, the menstrual cycle of Homo sapiens is 28 days on average. Well, among animals on this planet, a very small number, it's probably like 40 or 50, have a menstrual cycle. It's the apes, some bats, and the elephant shrew. That's it. Over the millions of species on this planet, we're, these are the only ones. Other animals come to heat or come to season, um, and so they don't have a, a monthly type of menstrual cycle. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting between us and the chimpanzee. The menstrual cycle, on average, of the chimpanzee is 37 days. It's not in sync with that of the moon. And I would argue that one of the reasons that the chimpanzee never learned to tell time like we do is that their menstrual cycle is not in sync. Now, what could happen over time is that there could be genetic um, um, mutations within the chimpanzee and they could, their, the menstrual cycle could shift more towards the moon. So that is entirely possible. Um, but it's, it's highly, mostly highly likely that the difference between us is that we're why we can tell time we learn to tell time and they did not is that we're in sync with the moon now the can imagine being on the beach and you're having all of a sudden you can t you learn how to tell time and this could happen many or times because many over many generations happened thousands of times among families that they just failed it just they didn't get off the beach 
Well, if you're you're on the beach and you learn to tell time and you know when the best time is to go to get shellfish, you're going to have a lot more protein than than a chimp eating nuts and berries in the trees. So your entire brain structure is going to change. Okay, so it's really important. And then what happens is that once you once you move away from that sort of biological, you know, intuitive type of thing and actual thinking in time, that you can you can take that biological the biological timing of the of the women's menstrual cycle, you can look at it at the moon itself, you can walk off the beach and you can migrate to places that are more beneficial. And that's huge. Because if, if you if your existence is just on the beach, every typhoon that comes by, your your population is is wiped away. And it probably happened thousands of times. But for those that made that leap, that they learned they connected the tides the, the menstrual cycle to the tides and then to the moon itself. They used it to tell time on the moon, on the move. And then what could happen is the women could be more productive. It, women didn't have to hunt or be with the hunters, and the women could take care of the, the children, and the men could be more productive hunters. Completely changed the dynamics of of Homo sapiens, bigger than fire. I mean, this this is this happened this happened before fire. I also believe it happened, you know, we, when I was in, uh, I'm in mid fifties now, when I was in high school and college, they talk about this tree of humanity, you know, um, you know, Homo erectus over here, Heidelberg's there, Homo sapiens there, and we all sort of came out of the tree. Well, the DNA evidence supports now that that didn't happen. In fact, there's some sort of spontaneous combustions that all these, that they're not actually branches on the trees, but they can't, they're like roots from different plants. Um, and so this could be explained through my hypothesis is that it happened many times over millions of years and animals, these um, primates, went off in, into different directions and one became who we are today, Homo sapiens. Now, we talked, you talked a little about the, 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 the moon's relationship to the earth and that the moon is in fact moving away from the earth. And so many millions of years ago and many, many millions of years in the future, it's not going to be 28 days on average. Okay. It's not going to be, actually, it's not going to be 28 days for the moon and it won't be in sync with the, with the Homo sapiens menstrual cycle. So perhaps we had this unique window of time within the last millions of years that allowed us to make this, this connection. And there may be some unique window of time in the many millions of years in the future where the chimpanzees fall into that unique time period. It'd make a good sci-fi um, story of, you know, homo sapiens, we kill each other off and, you know, tens of millions of years later as the moon moves away and the, the chimpanzee cycle, they cycle into the moon, they start to learn how to tell time. Um, and, or the, the, it could even happen or sooner if they, they had a genetic mutation that, that closed their female menstrual cycle closer to the moon. And, uh, so this is we're not in this in this program today. We're not just asking the big question of are we alone in the cosmos, but we're also asking the question is how the heck did we get here? How did we get to the so-called top of the food chain? How come we have cell phones and chimpanzees are still eating bananas? Um, well, we eat bananas too, but you know the story. The generally accepted mainstream view is that there is no correlation, direct correlation between the moon the cycles of the moon and human biology or behavior. And, and by that, I mean that the, the tidal force of the moon, you know, which affects the, the oceans and, and large lakes on earth 
isn't physically directly affecting human biology or behavior, but that doesn't mean that the cycles, that as we observe them, that, that we couldn't synchronize ourselves to those in some way, deliberately or subconsciously, in the way that you described female menstrual cycles synchronizing, you know, when groups of females are living together, spending long periods of time together. So there's two sort of separate issues there. And the question, does the moon affect us? Well, in terms of like direct forces, like, you know, like gravity or like electromagnetism, probably not as it seems, but the lunar observations, the solar observations, the stellar observations, as far back as we can go in human history, have been really, really important for a number of reasons. And we've obviously actively, at first to say maybe not consciously, but then we came to actively alter our behavior, our lives, everything about the way that we lived and therefore evolved, paying attention to these cycles. Oh, absolutely. And 15 years ago, when I started saying, talking about moon and biology, I'm going to tell you, you know, the eyes rolled and I was, I talked to scientific groups and um, they're like, oh boy, here's another nutty. And, um, you know, Billy Joel said, you may be right. I may be crazy, but it just may be a lunatic you're looking for. And years later, this became mainstream through my work because, you know, the concept got out there. Um, and, uh, so it's not wacky anymore, but it goes back to, so exactly, electromagnetism, tide, all these things have no effect on the moon. But all your guests are thinking, everybody's thinking the same question right now, is that, but don't go, pe- people go crazy around the full moon, right? I mean, you, you were thinking that same thing at some point. And the answer to the question is that the moon, if, if you're exposed to the light of the full moon at night, it's going to keep you awake. And so if you were crazy during the day and the light is on, you're going to be crazy during the night. Has nothing to do with the moon itself. It has to do with being awake. And I live in the, as I said, I live in Oregon. And in Oregon, we go, you know, for our, you know, our adventure, big adventures, we go up to Alaska. And maybe you guys go up like Finland or or something like that. And if you if you go up there in the summertime, you know, June or July, you get off the airplane, um, you know, twelve at night, twelve at midnight, it's fairly light, and you're you're awake. And, of, and then the sun comes up the next, well, the sun's always out, but as it gets brighter the next morning, you're still awake and you're going to go through that whole day. And the next night, so-called night, when it doesn't get dark again, you're probably going to be up to 11 or 12 again, okay? Because it's it's the darkness that puts you, the light wakes you up and the darkness puts you to sleep. Um, and so we have the, we have these behaviors that where um, the, the light and the dark affect us. And historically, people used to have ceremonies around the full moon because they they could they need light to have the ceremony itself and people could travel at night to and from safely more safely um, and so we have we talk about full moon and festivities and of course so-called crazy people it's because the light keeps us awake um, and that's a bi- it's a biological it's a biological thing and when i first when i was doing this work 15 years ago I would, um, most of the, 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 let's call it the scientific information either came from field research on fish and wildlife biologists or people who stu- um, study the physiology. And I would talk to the physiologists and I would ask them questions and put the pieces together. And they were like, you mean the, the, the people in the field don't know this? This is like the basics of, of physiology that how animals respond to light dark cycles. And so there's this, there's this disconnect in the sciences, and I'm not blaming the sciences, but it's a disconnect in society, is that people get pigeonholed into their own little thing, and they don't look out at the bigger picture. Um, they, they don't look at the, 
the other sciences after you graduate, you know, high school. Um, and, and so it's a, we, as a, as a modern society, we become such specialists, um, and that we fail to see the bigger picture within the other sciences, of course, in human nature and nature overall. Well, in any event, science is the art of the measurable, and um, not everything is measurable. So certainly, even if it's us self-inducing change in our bodies, which begin in our minds, we've certainly responded to things in our environment, um, or even just you know invented scenarios in our own minds about our environment that have affected our evolution. So there's all sorts of factors at play there, not just direct physical forces on life on Earth ourselves included. In any event, also, the moon is very important as a stabilizer for the Earth. It's and the keel. It's the keel. Without the moon, we'd be wobbling all over the place. Yeah, exactly. So if, if the moon just suddenly vanished, then life on Earth wouldn't come to an end by any means. But you would see a situation where uh, sometimes the Earth would tilt all the way over and basically lie on its side uh, in yes. relation to its orbit around the sun. And you'd have very extreme differences in temperatures and daylight throughout the year. At other times, the axis would be straight up and down. Uh, night and day would be equally long. Uh, there would be no seasons. So the upshot of it would all be, uh, in general, instability and unpredictability, extreme weather and huge differences uh, that were not there before. And some people would say, well, actually, increasing instability and unpredictability sounds like what the climate's doing at the moment. But the moon is incredibly important. And I just want to throw in at this stage, this is a book, uh, a lot of it is dismissed as pseudoscience, but it's very, very interesting read. And it's called Who Built the Moon by uh, Christopher Knight and Alan Butler. And it's full of fascinating uh, numbers and, and correspondences that basically suggest that the moon doesn't make any sense. And in some respects, it kind of shouldn't be there. So most most plants that have a moon, the moon is actually going towards their planets. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our calculus, it's moving away. It's believed that there is, um, it w- there's many theories, and one of the theories is that uh, a major asteroid hit the Earth a long, long time ago in the past and knocked it off, and it's still on its like spin away from us. And some of the evidence, the ev- the evidence, the, meter- the um, geological evidence is that what is on the, the material on the moon is actually the, the same it is on planet Earth. And I have a friend that works at Institute for Astronomy, University of Hawaii at, uh, at Maui, and he studies moon sand. He actually studies moon sand from all the Apollo missions. Um, and he, he, he was sent the moon sand because he also developed the first 3D microscope. And Gary, Gary, um, Gary Greenberg, he, um, he showed one of his first mission was just to determine if the moon itself was tied to the Earth. And it, um, geologically, it's the exact same. His second mission, actually mission, what actually what came about this was that by studying moon sand itself, he found that there's micro, there are micrometeors that shoot through the moon sand. And we don't have them on Earth. We actually have micrometeors on Earth that sort of like fall in the, you know, in the dust. Because, but since the, the moon doesn't have gravity, um, and it just shoot these these micrometeors shoot through the moon sand and kind of like a donut donut hole. And um, the question is is raised now: what, Why why haven't we been back to the moon a long time? Well, since Gary's done his work, we recognize that it was really a. Um, we're very lucky that the astronauts didn't have these micrometeorites shooting through their their um, their gear, and we in fact. We don't have gear today or spacesuits that will protect 
the astronauts from micrometeorites. And we know they exist because we can see them shooting. They actually, they just blow, they actually burn a hole through sand itself and that would go through a spacesuit. On Earth, we find micrometeorites. You won't, you won't like, they're in your backyard, but you'd never see them. But we find them in Antarctica because they, they, um, they, they fall into the, the, the water, um, water well sort of thing. And the military sends them to Gary, um, as comparison samples and, None of them have these micrometeorites that shoot through them. And if people go through Google um, Gary Greenberg, I think he's like sands.com or something, you can see these images of the micrometeorites. So in fact, so the, the moon does come from the Earth, and it's a fairly unique type of experience that that this is what it is. And so if, if we start to think about we have all these, you think about all the unique experiences we've talked about today. We've talked about a moon that's moving away. We have a moon that's, that, that is synchronous to the biological, um, clocks of Homo sapiens. We have a moon that can be seen from Earth that, um, animals are queuing off their light dark cycles. We have a moon that is, um, in training or is, um, moving the tides or, um, in, in making the tides. All these things are because of our moon. And if we look out into the cosmos and we start looking at, at other planets that um, have moons, well, may even have multiple moons. So they have that sloshing about that we would have if we didn't have our moon because it's just it's it, it, they don't have a keel. They have they have an atmosphere that you could never even see the moon. They have an they have lack of water. Um, so even if you go to the blue planets. You don't have th this unique biological situation that we have on planet Earth. And as I said, I'm not a religious person, but Jose um, the pro biblical prophet Abraham, as written in Josephus, had it right. Except for that there was a divine being that made all this stuff. He said that things are so unique around here and things are tied to the moon. He's like, well, what if we didn't have these, uh, these astronomical bodies? And the answer would be, well, we wouldn't be who we are. We wouldn't have this highly intelligent force that we are. And so if we go into go out, look out to the cosmos, well, what are the chances of, first of all, finding beings, animals with menstrual cycles? Because that's the, as far as we know right now, that is the only way that we can become conscious timekeeping um, beings. So what if we look at the example from our own planet, it, we're, we're like, we're so rare. And it's only been the last few million years over the billion years of this planet that we've actually had the ability that there's been a species that could do this. Um, so what's the probability of that happening out in the cosmos? Almost nil. Um, just because of the number of the species that we have. How, wh what would it be like if, so if, then you start thinking about how many, how many blue planets out there have a single moon? Ha and if they did have a mineral cycle, the animals, it would be in sync at that time because uh, it could be a billion years in the past. It could be in a billion years in the future. Um, you start thinking about all these these variables. Um, this biological time hypothesis puts constraint on freaking everything. And so the astrophysicists will say, well, there's trillions of planets out there in the cosmos. Yeah, I'll buy that one. But think about if, if you're going to work on the statistics like that, let's work on the statistics of how unique we are on this planet and not just at this time but in the history of our planet and then in the history of our own solar system and if you work the math that way ancient aliens is um is interesting fiction
Well, the, the Drake equation, which I mentioned a while ago and I said we'd get to, uh, you can uh, tell listeners about that now in a second, but that was kind of suggesting that in terms of a pure numbers game, that the question of like, why the big silence? You know, where is E.T.? Um, because the Drake equation is saying, you know, statistically, the chances are, you know, there must be out there. There must be something there. Exactly. So the Drake equation was made by Frank Drake. And compl- I have a lot of respect for Frank Drake, okay? So this is not like, I'm not dishing on Frank. And he was one of the founders of the SETI Institute, which has the um, the radio, they're the listening for radio signals. Um, and the SETI Institute has the largest supercomputer in the world. And how it works is that the radio, all the information that comes in goes fed over the internet to people around the world, just your, your own laptop, which crunches the numbers and sends it back to them um, the next day. And through the combination of all these computers and millions of people, you have, they have the largest supercomputer in the world. Okay. And so what Frank, Frank's work was called the, the Drake equation. And what he said was, start out like in a napkin or something. You know, there, there's so many stars in the, in the cosmos and they have how many, these stars have solar systems and you go down the line and how many have planets and how many have this and how many that. And then he says, how many have the possibility for life? When, and I'm okay that there's life all over the cosmos. I, I have no issue with that at all. We have life and volcanoes here and, you know, I am okay with that. Maybe not volcanoes, but let's say the geysers, right? Um, and I'm good with that. But when you, from life to intelligent life, to, let's say conscious timekeeping, intelligent life as we are, that is not an evolutionary imperative. It's, it's, it's not just something that would happen. Because if you look at our own planet, you know, you have bigger, stronger, faster animals and so on, but none of them, except us, are conscious timekeeping animals, even chimpanzees. A chimpanzee will remember that it had a bad day last week, but it can't tell you what what day last week it was. That's huge. A chimpanzee, um, you may say, if you offer a chimpanzee, I'm going to give you one banana today or a dozen next week or a dozen in 10 days, um, the chimpanzee is going to take the one banana today because they actually can't understand what 10 days in the future is. So as, as a concept is that the Drake equation jumping from the existence of life on blue planets to intelligent life, and then there's so many years, of course, that that hypothesis that will take intelligent life to making radio telescopes and and so on, so then we can listen and talk to each other. Um, And so I think that it's the Drake equation is not about biology, it's about physics. And there's assumptions about biology, especially biological clocks, chronobiology, that are not reality based on the information that we have today. So let's say I, someone makes me the king of the SETI Institute, which of course is not going to happen. Um, I haven't been invited to speak there yet. Um, but let's say somebody did. Okay, let's change the story. Okay, if, if, well, first of all, I'd get rid of the whole tel- radio telescope thing. I would start thinking about other ways that life could become intelligent timekeeping other than the so-called what I suggest is the menstrual cycle. Cause I'm not saying it's the only way, so, but I'm saying it's the only way that we have visibility on. And I would, so I'd start having the researchers start thinking about how we could become as we are today or something different that would be, um, you know, s- synchronous. And, you know, 90% of the work at the SETI Institute is actually on astrobiology. It's not on listening for ET because the U S government does not fund ET listening. Um, and so they, they have lots of money for astrobiology. So I would, I would change that astrobiology. I'd start thinking about the concept of, um, 
how do we what would it take to have highly intelligent life if in fact that's what we're looking for but if i was actually the king of seti what i would do is i'd start working more on the concept of more of astrobiology because being for us to be able to talk to et and listen and share swap stories all that stuff i think is absolutely irrelevant but i think it's more important is that we would we could learn through astrobiology about what what could life be on other blue planets and what we could learn from that and i think that is absolutely unique and, and valuable and i would love to go to some exoplanet and swim with the dolphins and um and those sort of things because i think that's possible but i don't believe that the concept of us being able to tune in to you know et 101 and hear the, you know the latest news story is ever going to happen and so why the big silence well that's the fermi paradox and the Fermi paradox has all these reasons why, you know, we haven't heard from ET. One of them, of course, is we are ET. Second is they're not listening. They're not interested. And you can go down the line of they're too far away and, you know, they don't have, they, they have radio telescopes, but they're not really, they, they, they don't want to listen to us. They kind of, they've moved on for, from idiots like us. And that's the Fermi paradox and people can look that one up. And so, um, I believe that we, the focus, should be on space exploration and learning about how we could in, we potentially would interact with um, life forms that are not conscious intelligent timekeeping as we are and uh, of course um, I you know if I give a presentation to an astrophysics group half the people are, are on board or are, are on board with the Drake equation and the other half are like you know maybe you know why the big silence make this really isn't working out today and so th this concept is um, it's earth shattering in this world of astrobiology and the search for ET. Because other than saying they're not, we haven't, why we haven't seen any yet. I, I believe I'm the first come, person to come along and say, this is the reason why we haven't received the call. And this is a, this is a scientifically sound um, explanation for it. And by the way, I'm not, you know, I don't want to go out and kill ETs and all that sort of stuff and throw away the, the, the fun and the fiction. Because I would love to, you know, hang out with Chewie in the bar and, um, and drink whatever they do on, you know, in, in, in Star Wars. But I think that if we're going to, if science is going to, is going to push, say science is correct, I believe that we need to look at all the facets of the science. And we just can't say, well, the Drake equation explains why um, there could be intelligent life in the cosmos, because it doesn't. It's not science. And I believe that science needs to step up to say, um, this isn't working. Maybe we should think about other perspectives. You touched upon the Fermi paradox there, uh, which for people who don't know it's f-e-r-m-i uh, i do want to touch upon uh, you reeled off a few aspects of that i do want to touch upon a couple of those in a moment but this is something that always uh, no matter how often i come back to the scale of the cosmos to our solar system the wider galaxy and the universe at large every time i remind myself of some of the scales we're talking about here in terms of size and distance it never ceases to make my jaw drop sure. you know it's always a source of wonder and kind of terror in some ways at the same time. So I'm going to just give people a few numbers. And these are relevant in more than one way. In one sense, in terms of us being contactable by any other uh, life forms or intelligences that might be out there, but also very relevant for us 
getting off this rock and going anywhere. Uh, we've, got, <laughs> we've got big issues with now. The nearest, uh, let's just talk about the size of the solar system. A lot of people have kind of a woolly grasp of this, and that's fair enough because most people are not that interested in astronomy, uh, uh, you know, above and beyond Carl Sagan back in the day and kind of Brian Cox uh, today in terms of popularizers of science. I always assumed when I was a child that, you know, because Pluto was kind of like, I think that's been made to be not a planet and it might be back being a planet again, I'm not sure. But as far as as we were observing in the solar system, uh, there were certain objects that did, did, you know, demarked the end of the solar system. Beyond that, there was a lot of space. And then at some point, other things began, and that was deep space, outer space, whatever. Then I read about something called the Oort Cloud, which can be considered, you know, by some people, a boundary to our solar system. And that is so much further out uh, than the the furthest bodies that we've currently mapped in the solar system. And it wasn't that long ago that I remember reading um even some of the mainstream media had a story about Voyager 1 the probe that was launched in 1977 the fastest ever human made object traveling at what well, i don't know 38,000 miles an hour or something um had finally left the solar system and i read one story countering this and saying you know it's not even close to being at the earth cloud so this voyager isn't going to leave the so- <laughs> isn't, isn't going to leave the solar system for many lifetimes yeah. to come and then the nearest star beyond that a lot of people say alpha centauri that's basically a system. Uh, Proxima Centauri is actually the closest star to our own solar system. And that's 4.244 light years away. Now, trying to express that in terms of miles can be just meaningless, uh, just because you don't get enough zeros to fit on your page. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's this thing called the astronomical unit, which has been devised to help us cope, uh, make these numbers a bit more manageable. And an astronomical unit is 93 million miles Okay, so Proxima Centauri, near star, 4.244 light years, and it is 63,000 astronomical units. There are 63,000 astronomical units in a light year, okay? Mm -hmm. So that means that Proxima Centauri is 93 million miles times 63,000, I think I've got that right, away. So 93 times 63,000, 93 million times 63,000. That's how far away we're talking, and that's the nearest star. And in 26,700 years from now, Proxima Centauri, like everything else in the the galaxy, is moving, and it will come within 3.1 light years of Earth. So that's considerably closer than 4.2 light years. Now, Voyager 1, which I mentioned, traveling at, you know, 38,000 miles per hour, that would reach, if everything suddenly became static, Apart from Voyager, it would reach Proxima Centauri in just under 74,000 years from now. But (laughs) (laughs) by the time it does that, Proxima Centauri will already have kind of, as far as Voyager is concerned, it will will have stopped and begun moving away. So if Uh Voyager 1 was trying to get to our nearest star at the fastest ever moving man-made object, it, Mm. it, it couldn't get to it because it would find itself chasing Proxima Centauri and falling behind. So, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah, so, 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 okay. So I've, you know, I speak to astrophysicists and groups and, and people throughout things, you know, maybe we go through the wormholes. I'm like, okay, you know, that, that's science fiction. You know, it's great stuff and it's up there with, with warp drives and it's science fiction to get there. Now, NASA has studied the question of how many generations it would take to send people to, to travel and just, you know, past our solar system. And the, the, and the, they finally came up with a, a problem. 
So yeah, yes, you could start sending generations off the space. And everybody, if everybody had kids when they were 30 years old, those kids could, you know, have so many years and they would have kids when they were 30 years old. Well, you'd have to have this like police state that nobody has kids that are 30 years old. And then after a few generations, it asked the, the, the question is asked among them is, you know, do we really care about reaching that distant planet that our great grand, great, 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 great grandparents did? Or do we just want to go back to where we came from? <laughs> so the, the, the initial group sticks to the mission. They can, they indoctrinate their kids early on that they stick to the mission. But the grand challenge are like, we're going back. <laughs> oh, and, and there's lots of science fiction stories that involve like going home as far mm-hmm. as, uh, as interstellar uh, travelers are going, uh, are concerned. And there, well, there's this proposed form of propulsion for uh, that might achieve interstellar travel, nuclear mm-hmm. nuclear pulse propulsion. And yeah. taking some of the figures bandied about around that, a starship could get to Proxima Centauri from here in maybe 100 years. So you would need what's called, in, in science fiction, but also in, in proposed science, a generation mm-hmm. starship, exactly as you sure. mentioned, with multiple generations on the same craft. But there's all sorts of problems with that. In fact, um, there's many science fiction stories about these problems, but one of the best known is Robert Heinlein's uh, Orphans of the Sky and the inhabitants of the Generation Starship there. Many generations before there'd been a mutiny on board, people unhappy along the lines uh, as you've exactly just described. Yeah. And the, the the people left on the ship have forgotten what they're doing. So yeah. <laughs> they don't know. As far as they're concerned, the ship is, is reality. It's the universe. So they're yeah. just drifting off there, you know, and like keeping the whole thing running. And they don't, they don't know what they're doing. Sometimes it feels to us like we're supposed to be fulfilling some higher purpose. But here we are on Earth kind of just churning and grinding through life and going to the office and coming back again. Thinking like, oh, is there something else we're supposed to be doing? Exactly. In fact, there, there's, a, there's a SETI talk by Nick Canis. He's a psychiatrist. And so he's an astropsychologist and psychiatrist, and he talks about this whole concept of multi-generational, actually just one generation space travel and what it entails. And it's about and how, how long people go out before they really want to come back. Um, and it's great. It's on YouTube, and I highly recommend people to. And he was, he was involved with the whole NASA program. But, you know, what I'm saying is that, and we can kind of loops back, is we could talk about um, – you know, zooming through space with hyperdrives and warp drives and or through wormholes and all this sort of stuff. And looking for, you know, E.T. to sit down and have tea with, I don't think he's out, he or she or they are out there. Um, I believe that there's, you know, this equivalent of a dolphin swimming out there um, on those places so, so far away that we'll never reach them. And that they, that those dolphins don't make radio telescopes to go or send off radio waves through their, um, their instruments to talk to, to talk or listen to us. And so this biological time hypothesis as it relates to the Drake equation is that, um, we're probably alone. I mean, we, I mean, it's most probably alone and statistically improbable, improbable that it's, that ET is out there. And if we're alone, if this is us, we probably need to get along a little better and appreciate that we, in fact, um, are the aliens on this planet um, and that we're, we're so unique here among the animal beings that we should take care of it. So we don't need, you know, Mars is never going to be option B um, and we're never going to have life-sustaining colonies on the moon, on our own moon, which is not far away. 
we sort of need to get along and we need to take care of the planet that we have. Uh, for um, It's not for rich or for poor or better or worse. It's we got to figure it out. And that's probably a, a wrap-up of um, tying the concept in that the answers aren't out there. The answers are all around us. We just have to look within us. We have to understand who we are. And we need to understand the world, all these animals around us. And we don't want to lose those animals because they're all tied together. And that's a Native American um, animist perspective. But I believe that is the, the truth of all the ages. Well, related to what you just said, one of the reasons I think that we're so attached to the idea of extraterrestrial life, that it must be out there, and that one day, you know, we must reach the stars, that's our destiny, is because we're trying to escape problems right here. And I know that's a kind of a popular trope or meme at the moment, but I think it's very true. Now, I, as a child, and maybe you were as well, was fascinated by the idea of life on other planets just for the sake of pure fascination. It was just your imagination would run wild about what could be out there. But there's definitely a, a strong streak. Uh, there has been for some time where it's like, especially with the way things are going here, is like, you know, even people like Stephen Hawking, people who should know better, say, <laughs> saying that, you know, we have to reach the stars for the, for the human race to continue. Well, you know, we can wish impossible things. But for me, that's a way of just batting the problem down the line somewhere. It's not an answer to a difficulty. It's just like saying, you know, if you've got financial problems that you're going to, you know, I'm going to, tomorrow I'll just do some, you know, revolutionary patents on uh, devices that are, you know, that will change the world and I'll become very rich. So, yeah, I'll get up at 9 a.m., make some coffee and do the patents, you know, and then my uh, my creditors will go away. Yeah, uh, this is our planet and we've been graced with it. Um, we need to take care of the planet. We need to solve things here. We need to get along. And, um, and there will, with or, with or without man's influence, there is climate change and it, it does move the populations around. There will always be winners and losers, but we need to mediate what we do, um, to exacerbate what changes there are, um, either, um, and to, um, better manage what is inevitable. It's a kind of, um, it ties in with what I just mentioned about our sort of, our need for there to be something out there as kind of some form of future salvation for us. There's also just the idea of being alone in the cosmos in itself, particularly when you look at some of the, reconsider some of the statistics I mentioned earlier. For example, another one is that the observable universe, places from which light has reached the earth since the big bang, the ratio of actual universe to observable is, is similar to observable universe to a proton in terms of size. So that's the sort of scale we're talking about. And the observable universe is already unimaginably vast. And we actually don't know what's lying beyond that. So the person who came up with that, that the ratio is, uh, is a, uh, you know, from the actual universe to observable is comparable to observable to the size of a proton. I don't know what they're basing that on, but that's very easy to sort of, you know, to, to see how that could be the case. You know, it might as yeah. well be because we just don't know. So there's this existential horror, I think, associated with the idea that, that out there, there isn't nothing necessarily. You said there could be all sorts of life. And it sounds like you, you feel, uh, with your understanding so far that there probably is lots of different forms of life all over the place. This, that, and the mm -hmm. other thing, just not like us. But even if there isn't nothing out there, if there's nothing that cares about us and is just going through the motions of, of, you know, daily life and existence, that in itself is incredibly difficult, I think, for us as a species to process. 
Yes, it is. So, so some 15 years ago when I kind of came up, I'd worked in the biological time work and, and all this sort of stuff and the animals and, and then there was like one night I was actually starting to think about this question and I had read that Josephus, the, the Abraham quote and, um, saying that, you know, all these, all these bodies are, you know, synchronous for to the benefit of us. They don't appear to help themselves. Therefore, there must be a divine being, which I don't agree with. But I thought about that and said, well, maybe there's another perspective on this on that. In fact, we are because of these unique type of um, bio biological clocks and astronomical timing that makes us unique in the cosmos. And I, you know, it was late one night and I just like, went into a silence for a while to think about the implications of the whole thing. I'm like, wow, this is a big idea. It's not, you know, you know, they did the Drake equation back when Frank Drake, and he thought that was a big idea. And I've just, the idea that we're alone is like a huge idea. Um, and then I, so I wrote the paper, I sent it to the Griffith Observer and they, um, they accepted it. It took them three years to publish it. And I'm going to tell you, they don't have that long a backlog. What I and they changed the last paragraph. <laughs> they changed the last paragraph because uh, to so maybe we're alone versus I, I said you know we're alone. <laughs> okay, they changed it, um, and uh, I really think that they they pondered over it and that they really as professional astronomers and astrophysicists that they themselves weren't ready for that uh, for this question to you know. This, that, that we are a singularity of who we are in the cosmos. Um, it's, it's a daunting thought. It's more fun, easier to believe that, you know, ET build the pyramids than it is to believe that we're alone. Um, at least ET orchestrated building the pyramids. You know, you got, they had the Egyptians to do it, right? And, um, but it, it's, it's, it's a daunting concept. And I tell you, there was another daunting concept. And when I was working this biological time work, and I'd, I'd seen the, um, you know, the, the um, all these solar lunar events and so on. But and I hadn't made before I'd made the connection. It was one night, and it was it was Christmas Eve. I mean, it was like eleven o'clock at night. You know, my daughter's tucked away, and I was I was looking at salmon timing, and I know I know that salmon were migrating more prolifically during the new moons and the full moons. And I said, well, I'm going to go salmon fishing. You know, now I know how it works. I said, well, which, so let's plan a trip. And then I, I line, I lined up all these, these graphs on the wall. And I said, well, I'm going to go here. But I said, well, then I start that. Well, which new moon is it? And I said, and I said, and I realized, oh my God, the reason why the, the, the sound migrations early later is because of the tide to the sun and the moon and they're out of sync with each other. And it was like a ton of bricks fell in my head. And I was like, oh my God. And, um, does anybody know this? And I, so of course I start Googling it. I, and actually, was, I started researching it. And, um, two days later, I called up somebody who was a chronobiologist, um, John Palmer, and he's fam very famous. And I said to him, um, I said, John, do you has, let me explain this. Have you ever seen this in print anywhere? And then he had silence for like 30 seconds and he said, I can't believe we missed it. And by, the chronobiologist having missed this concept of the sun being out of the moon, the moon being out of the sink, that animals had biological clocks timed to both the sun and the moon, and that made migrations earlier or later. It actually explains eons of ideas in wildlife biology. It validates the, the lunar calendars of hunter-gatherers around the world, and it validates 
traditions, such as the Yami people we spoke about earlier, the Thompson Indians who timed off the, the black-tailed deer, it validated their, um, their religious traditions that were completely part of their lives and how they continued to live on. So I had a few jaw-dropping moments, and of course, the first big one was that night, that Christmas Eve, when um, I put the two together and realized that's why the salmon were early later. And then this much a few years later with this this concept of tying into the the biblical um, Abraham and the story as is in jo- Josephus the um, the story in Josephus realizing oh my God you know this explains you know why we are who we are and perhaps we in fact are alone and it's it's a daunting concept that you. You, you actually, in an hour podcast, it isn't enough time to actually, you know, sink in. And your listeners and yourself, perhaps over the next days, weeks, and even years, will come to this, like, you know, this. It's like, an, in some ways, it's like an emptiness that we're looking for something. We're looking for that great mate, um, but that mate isn't out there. But at the same time, we have to realize that it's not out in the cosmos, I should say. But those great mates and our our um, comrades and our friends and all the both two-legged and four-leggeds are here. Everything we need is here. And someday in the future, there will be some major asteroid, uh, comet, whatever, that whacks into the Earth, and there's going to be a, a, a changing of the guard. And that's okay because there will be new life. And perhaps the chimpanzees will survive. And in, and we don't. And in many, many millions of years, when the chimpanzees become, their menstrual cycle becomes in sync with the moon is at, is at that time, it'll all start over again. And maybe they'll do a better job of it than us. Um, and that's probably the, that is probably a better dream for our future than finding some utopian, you know, planet, exoplanet um, in a faraway galaxy. Um, on the other side of the cosmos. Well, just a couple of closing thoughts, Bernie. In terms of the Fermi paradox, a couple of other dimensions of that which are popularly cited are the idea that Earth is deliberately not contacted because, you know, we're almost like in a Petri dish and we're being left alone. <laughs> so our, our development, you know, is not interfered with. There's then the idea that Earth is purposefully isolated like a prison planet thing because we're just a violent off the hook out of control insane species we cannot be allowed to infect the rest of the the galaxy i think they're just versions of that that kind of thinking they're the kind of the flip side of thinking we had earlier about that there must be something out there we're just about to have meaningful contact with et and have a ascension in consciousness and the opposite you know actually you know we're just being contained here until we learn to be better and then the you know the galactic council or whatever will come along and say you have reached the you know the ascended master level or that you know you've made the grades you know you can now be allowed to take part take your place in galactic civilization i think it's all part of the same thinking really there are other interesting questions that we didn't have time to get to for example you know questions of dark matter dark energy and such a large proportion of the mass of the universe being unaccounted for, that could lead us to thinking about, well, other forms of life, are they just so unlike life that we can imagine, but they're still out there, but we just can't comprehend them? You know, is extraterrestrial life not interstellar, but interdimensional in some way? You know, like in the sci-fi film Event Horizon, 
the ship there is making its way, ironically enough, to Proxima Centauri. Something goes badly wrong and it appears to have slipped into another dimension. But again, those are kind of imponderables. They're very interesting questions, but they don't necessarily have a direct bearing on our place on the Earth at the moment in the way that we're speaking about it. And so finally, I would just say, if our development up to this point has been so unique and the other dimension uh, not mentioned so far of the Fermi paradox is that perhaps it's in the nature of intelligent life to destroy itself. So maybe intelligent life has developed elsewhere in the universe, but it's done what we're in danger of doing at the minute. So that begs the question then, is there some special place for us in the evolution of the cosmos? Or perhaps, as you suggest, might we just be replaced? And then is is there an upward arc here? Is there a natural teleology going forward um, or as amazing as we appear to be, is it just kind of a randomized bubble, you know, that doesn't actually have any greater significance? Esoteric questions you have there. Um, I believe that um, a comet's going to hit planet Earth at some point in the future. It's happened before, and it'll happen again. And it wiped out the dinosaurs except for the chickens, right? <laughs> 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 and of course, the the crocodiles and alligators and other reptiles. And so there's, um, I believe it's going to happen again because everything everything in our past says that it will happen again. And you know maybe maybe Homo sapiens survive, maybe we don't. But there's no reason to believe that the orangutans and the gorillas and the chimpanzees can't. Find, either stay as they are and be happy as a clam and, you know, hang swinging from the trees, or they go on to evolve on some parallel path that we have. Um, there's, it's happened, it's happened before. It's no reason why it can't happen again. And all of the, all the information is there. And so there'll be a, t- um, I think that the future is not as homo sapiens but i think it's the future of life that matters and that whatever form that we or our common ancestors um move on forward through time and space is what's you know the reality and someday there might be a comet that there will be a comet that hits the earth and it you know grabs some dna um and some sort of microorganism and that comet continues through space and you know, lands on some exoplanet, you know, in, you know, a trillion years, someplace so far off and life can seed itself again. And so I, I don't see, you know, I'm not really much of a homo sapiens first type of person and, or even a primate person. Um, but I really think it is that life itself will endure. Um, and that life on this planet will, in our own, in our own castor, catastrophic event for homo sapiens um will will seed other life on this planet if not elsewhere in the cosmos so are we alone in the cosmos that initial question we asked is um the answer is no we're not alone in the cosmos but we are alone we're likely alone as highly intelligent um, conscious timekeeping beings um but we are not alone in the cosmos from the perspective of life itself and that we may be the ants, the distant ancestors of life from some catastrophic event, catastrophic event, um, you know, deep, in, deep into some other far reaches. And perhaps we will be the same 
for some other life form in that distant future. Bernie, today our talk was uh, inspired by a presentation of yours which I saw entitled Are We Alone in the Cosmos? Biological Time and the Drake Equation. Have you got any plans to expand this into something bigger? Is this the beginning of uh, you know a new book, for example, perhaps? Uh, well, Before Orion was my last book. Um, and Before Orion doesn't have this Drake Equation type of information, but it actually talks about the biological clocks and the calendars going deep into the Paleolithic. I show that um, it's in the caves of Europe. It's also in a, sign, uh, a gesture language, both for telling time and the animals. Um, so I've, I've taken to that point, and I left, I left the cosmos stuff. And I've come back to it, of course, with the podcast. But I've gotten more into the psychology of humans, and which is the work of Before Ryan and, and the myth. And every year I do a – because it's an ebook, I can update it, and I do. And just, you know, this, this last few days, I've actually been working on additional images. And I always put those images on my webpage, beforeorion.com, and um, through, on my social media, um, everything before Ryan. Every, every social media out there is before Ryan. Okay? Um, and so people can, you know, catch the wave and continue on the journey. Um, but to, um, if someone wanted to do a documentary on this concept, love to do it. But I left the the, bio, the core biological time work, and which is a third of the book was statistics, and another third was was um, was footnotes, uh, endnotes. Um, I've left that, but I would do a documentary on it, and I still I make videos, do presentations. But I'm more interested now in this the psychology of man, going back into the Paleolithic, you know, into tens of thousands of years ago, that we retain the same myths and the same astronomy, and that we're we're re we're not inventing new science now, but we're actually building on science from tens of thousands of years ago without us previously even know that we did. And that's the kind of the future of my work. Okay. Well, I think it's our psychology going forward that's going to, as a species, it's going to make us or break us. Uh, you've mentioned uh, your social media there and your website. Is there anything else you'd like to share? No, I just, well, thanks Greg for having me on again. This is our second app, our second program. And I look forward to doing many more throughout our time. Splendid. Well, once again, Bernie, thank you so much for joining us once again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. Let's do it again.